We're reading this morning from Acts chapter 7, verse 54, through the first half of Acts um, chapter 8, verse 1. And a brief back background today to, to the uh, scripture reading. Stephen had been appointed one of the first deacons of the early church. Later, he was noted as doing great wonders and signs among the people that he engaged in dispute with Jews from several synagogues. But, quote, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, end quote. These men then instigated false testimony against Stephen, triggering his being brought before the council of Jewish leaders. Stephen made a masterful defense of his innocence and concluded by accusing the Jewish council themselves of one, opposing God, two, of betraying and murdering the righteous one, namely Jesus, and three, of failing to keep God's law. Today's text describes the response of the council and what happened next. Starting at 50, verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. I enjoy watching sports. And uh, I watch it on different channels, uh, different, different games. And sometimes on one of the channels, what will happen is when you go to select to watch the game, it will actually give you the option of choosing which broadcast you want to watch. So it might be an NBA game, and I'm a local fan, I'm a Phoenix Suns fan, so you, you know, if they're playing a team out of Miami, it will actually give you the option of do you want to watch the, the commentary of the Phoenix-based folks, or do you want to watch the same game, but with the commentary of the people from Miami? And if you were to mute the TV and exclusively watch the live activity of the game, it wouldn't matter at all which one you chose. It's the same game, same players, same location, same officials, it's all the same. However, if you don't mute it and you watch it as it is broadcast, you will have a completely different viewing experience. If you're watching the game and you listen to the commentary, you'll see a guy get fouled 
and in one of them the commentators will be talking about how it's a terrible call and they can't believe they even called that and if you're watching the other commentary they say boy it's about time they finally called that that just keeps happening can you believe they haven't called that more even within the broadcast um, I've found that the actual replays will be different so you know for for one team they'll keep replaying a spectacular play and kind of hyping up the crowd and yet um, from the other um, broadcast when there's time in between the replays they'll be showing is to show how you know a, a particular call was absolutely a bad call and and so when you view the exact same game you will come away with or during the course of the game that you're watching have a completely different experience and it and it actually affects your emotions you know the music that they're playing the replays that they show the words that they use what it is that they're focusing on all of those things end up having an, an, an emotional impact which is why they have two different options the Miami people don't want to listen to Phoenix guys the Phoenix people don't want to listen to the Miami people you want to hear your own people talk about your own stuff and of course that couldn't be more true than in cable news I mean you can take the same footage of the exact same event and if you add commentary from one cable news channel it'll be 180 degrees different from the other cable news channel talking about the exact same video of the exact same event and so what we have today in our passage in Acts 7 is one event that has dramatically different outcomes, dramatically different emotional experiences. So when you look at verse 54, it begins with, now when they heard these things. So, so the these things are the actual indisputable facts that are at play that leads to everything that takes place after this. The these things are the, uh, I think, 53 verses that precede it in chapter 7 where Stephen systematically goes down the line and talks about the prophecies that are all pointing forward to one particular man and then the commentary that he adds about that man and his life and his death and his resurrection. It's all about one event. In fact, even the information that Stephen was giving to these men that, were, that make up the council, the religious leaders, would have been extremely familiar with it. That's why he was even talking about it. So he's telling them things that they already know, facts that they already have in their head from the Hebrew canon, from the Old Testament. They have many of these things memorized, and yet Stephen is recounting all of them, and in doing so, what he does is actually present the gospel message. That's where it lands. The these things is the truth, is the reality of the actual gospel message about Jesus Christ. That's really what it comes down to. And what happens is when you enter these things or when you enter in the gospel of Jesus Christ into this particular scenario, when it's imported in there, you see in the remainder of verse 54, what takes place. There are some immediate effects of this gospel being presented. 
when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now, as insults go, you know, the fact that Stephen said to them uh, a, a couple verses prior to that, he called them stiff-necked. He brought, you know, their pedigree, in a sense, into question. Ultimately, he's calling them sinners. Now, I can't imagine that this is the first time that these religious leaders have had things said to them that they didn't like or people talk about them because they're in positions of leadership. Cert certainly, that has to be the case. But the fact of the matter is that this is not just, the gospel is not just a theological proposition. It's not just one option among a list of different faith options. You know, all roads lead to Rome, right? Or, you know, whatever you believe, just be true to that. The world then, and, I, and certainly the world today, has that same kind of sentiment. Just believe what you're going to believe, and just be true to that, and everything's going to work out okay, because you have faith. You're a spiritual person. You are a religious person. And that is absolutely not the case. There is truth and there is untruth. And when you get the unvarnished gospel message, it has an immediate effect. And that's exactly what we see here. These men that made up the council, that made up the Sanhedrin, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now, that Greek word that makes up enraged, you know, they've translated it into English. However, it actually is an idiom in the, in the Greek language, and directly translated it is, they were sawn through their hearts. Sawn through their hearts. They were filled with rage. Their hearts were saturated with anger and with rage. And so, from this internal sense of how they were filled with hate and with anger, it boiled over into an external, into visible signs of grinding their teeth. They're so internally filled with hate, so saturated with hate, that it was visible on their body that they're grinding their teeth. This is what happens when the gospel is introduced. The gospel opens the eyes of the blind and simultaneously rebukes the insolent. The gospel sets Christians free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, and simultaneously, the mind that is not set on God, uh, that is set on the flesh, is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. When the light of God's word is brought to bear, it will elicit one of the two responses. It will drive someone to submission because, the, because God's word is judging them, or people will dig in, they will suppress the truth, and they instead judge the Bible. They're the ones that then come up with ideas about why the Bible's not true and and why they should be rebellious against the Bible. Its immediate effect 
is the hearer either submits and gains freedom or they increase in their hostility and deepen their rebellion. And here we see that when the gospel is introduced by Stephen, that immediate effect is that they are absolutely overwhelmed with anger. In verses 55 and 56, we get a sense of the gospel effect on believers. And I want to point out two things to you about what the gospel does, the, uh, the fruit of the gospel for people that are Christians. And the first thing is that the gospel gives believers fresh eyes. It gives them a different, uh, a different view. Now, we do see, first of all, um, that it mentions that Stephen is filled with the Spirit. In verse 55, it says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And it's true, of course, that he was full of the Spirit, but we know that this is also consistent with what Peter preached to, um, to folks in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it is absolutely true that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, and I think that ground, that foundation is being laid there. But what's important to know is that anybody that is a believer in God, a true believer, they too are filled with the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 55, it does say, but he, so Stephen, is full of the Holy Spirit. But actually what I want to point out there is that phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, is kind of backgrounded information. It's not the main point. So you could even say, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, so that fact is there, and that's good to know. However, that is not the main point. The main point is that, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. The Greek word there for gazed is to stare intently. I probably didn't even need to tell you what the Greek was for that because to gaze is to stare intently. The point is that he was captivated by the glory of God and by Jesus. When you are a Christian and you are filled with the Spirit, you are given the opportunity to shift your outlook entirely. Everything that happens to you in this world, there, of each person that is sitting here today is going through some different experience. Some of you might just be on cloud nine because you, you learned some information that just makes your world the happiest place ever. And some of you right now are just struggling to keep yourself together. And the entire spectrum is happening in here. But here is the beautiful thing that we get to see in this example, is that when you are a Christian and you are filled with the Spirit, your perspective, the vision that you are given, is one like Stephen's where you can be captivated by the glory of God and by Jesus. That even when in Stephen's example, even when these men who are enraged, they are sawn through the heart, 
and are grinding their teeth, they are so mad at him, his outlook is that he is gazing, he is captivated by heaven and looking to the glory of God. The spirit-filled Christian need not be consumed, but can be captivated. And it reminded me of the third stanza of A Mighty Fortress. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word. or uh, We tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. And that is the perspective of the believer. That is what the gospel effect has on the believer. We can be captivated by what God is doing in our lives and the fact that the difficulties that we go through the medical issues, the financial issues, the family issues, all the different things that take place in our life that cause us anxiety, that, cause, that, that gives us pause, that may cause us to lose sleep at night, those are not ultimate issues for the Christian. For the spirit-filled Christian, you can be captivated by the glory of God and what it is that he has in store. So you need to ask yourself, does this characterize you? Are you captivated by God? In the midst of your circumstances, would somebody else, would your spouse or, so, or a friend, somebody close to you, when they see the way you are handling your difficulty, would they say, wow, that guy has a different perspective. That lady, I, I don't know how she does it. Or are you completely consumed when the world rages around you? You don't have to be. And that brings us to the second point of, um, of the gospel effect on believers, and that is that we also can receive assurance. So from our perspective, our responsibility is to stare intently, is to be captivated by the glory of God, but then also God gives us assurance that he is going to see us through to the end because we see right here in verse 56, where it reads, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, it's fascinating because usually when we see any kind of reference to the Son being at the right hand of God, he's seated, right? After he dies, he is resurrected and he is seated at the right hand of God. And in this case, Jesus, when he is seated, he is in a position of authority. The work has been accomplished. And by picturing Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, the work has been done and the authority has been declared. Now we see Jesus is actually standing. He's taking a posture that is actually welcoming He's providing assurance to this very first martyr of the new church that he is going to receive him. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is that victory that was being communicated to Stephen. He actually has a vision. He can see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in, in, a, in a sense, he is welcoming. He is going to usher Stephen into safety and into glory. And, you know, we need not see these visions ourselves. God is giving that to us through Scripture and through Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the new church. And so by communicating to us through his word that Stephen sees this, we too can know, just like what Peter said to those to whom he was preaching, that all Christians, all those that place their faith in Christ are going to be filled with the Spirit. Likewise, Stephen was filled with the Spirit. And when he experienced the gospel effects, even though the world around him was wanting to tear him apart, he actually had the assurance of Christ standing at the right hand of God. So the gospel effects for the believer is that they have new eyes and a heavenly perspective and also that they have full assurance that they're going to overcome this world. And I want to make another kind of theological note about what it is that he's saying. So going back to verse 56, it says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So that verbiage that, um, that Stephen is using is a direct connection. It's a direct hyperlink back to Daniel chapter 7, where it says, the prophet Daniel refers to one like the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And when he comes to that Ancient of Days, he is going to be given dominion, an everlasting dominion. So there is an authority that is going to be given to that Son of Man. So, what the, as, as Stephen is experiencing those gospel effects of receiving comfort, of having a new eyes, in a sense, even while the world is enraged with him. And as he is gaining that assurance from seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, he is also continuing to proclaim that same gospel message because he is saying things that those same people that are enraged with him would understand the implications of referring to him as the Son of Man. He is essentially saying that that same Jesus that came to earth and that died and that descended to Hades and that was resurrected and then was ascended to the right hand of the Father, in that act, he possessed the keys of death and Hades. Jesus had defanged the serpent. And it's no wonder now, I mean, this is a, rare, a relatively short amount of time after all of that had happened. And so Stephen is proclaiming the gospel to the very faces of these people that contributed to the death of Christ, that helped to accomplish God's plan in defanging the serpent. And then here they are, puppets for the adversary. So you can understand why now when Stephen is saying, I see the Son of Man, that they are absolutely filled with fury. 
They're connecting the dots. They are not struggling whatsoever to understand the implications of what it is that Stephen is saying. Our third point here is that there are the gospel effects then on the unbelievers in verses 57 and 58, where it says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So they're stopping their ears and they're shouting him down because they believe that what they're hearing is blasphemy. So this continues to show that they knew exactly what it was that Stephen was communicating because they were trying to prevent themselves from even hearing the words and they rushed at him. In fact, um, our ESV just keeps it pretty succinct when it says they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. The little bit fuller sense there is that they rushed with one purpose. There is a unity to what they're doing. I mean, let's get him. They are all together. They're united in their hearts. They are united in their hatred, and they are united in their action to drag him out of town and to stone him. And what adds to their guilt as well is even this whole idea of removing their cloaks before they get to stoning him. You know, even in today's courtroom, I can tell you that one of the factors that a judge will take into account is what people do right immediately preceding committing the crime. So if someone, if there is a shooting, a guy shoots someone else, if prior to that shooting, the person the shooter went out to his car, opened the trunk, and grabbed the gun out and walked back in the house, even if it only took 30 seconds. The judge is going to take into account the fact that the guy took the time and put forth the effort to leave the house, to go get the gun, to walk back into the house, and to shoot the other person. That, even that amount of effort and intent put in will slide it into that premeditated category. And here we have a cultural change, but that amounts to the same thing. They drag him out of the city because they're absolutely filled with rage, but they take off their cloaks. They want to free up their arm so that they can cleanly throw stones at Stephen's body and at his head. The effect of the gospel on the hard-hearted is that it increases their hostility, it increases their anger, and it increases their rebellion. And then, really, this comes to a climax in verses 59 and just barely dips into chapter 8 there, the first, uh, the first verse of chapter 8 where it comes to this culmination of the future effects of the gospel. Because each of these things individually, the gospel has its immediate effect of either 
driving someone to submission or increasing their hard-heartedness. It has that effect on believers of giving them new eyes and giving them assurance. It has that effect on unbelievers of driving them to action in their hardness of heart. But all of those things are individual acts that people are going to give an account for. Each of them have their own decisions within that that they're going to have to answer for. So if they're the ones that, that, that led the charge and they're the ones that were unified um, in their purpose to drag Stephen out and to stone him, and they're the ones that took the time to take off their cloak and to pick the biggest rock that they could find and throw it the hardest and to really aim for his head, each person, each man that was involved in that individually is going to have to give an account before God for their actions. But this is the amazing thing, of course, is that God takes all of these individual parts and they are seamlessly a part of his greater plan. So there is a future gospel effect. And what is God's will from the very beginning, from Genesis 1? It's to grow his kingdom. That's the assignment that was given to Adam and Eve even prior to Genesis 3 when the fall entered in. They were instructed to go out and to expand the garden, to grow God's kingdom. That's the same thing that the believer is to do. How does the believer do that? By presenting the gospel, by inserting the gospel into the lives of other people, by telling them about what Christ has accomplished and their need to repent and believe. And so here we see that Stephen plays his part of delivering the gospel, which leads to these men in the council playing their parts, these stiff-necked men playing their parts by becoming enraged, which drives, as an effect of that gospel, it drives Stephen to look to heaven and to declare the deity of Jesus which angers the council even more and results in them stoning Stephen. And in the middle of all of this happening, things for which each of them, whether positive or negative, God is going to hold them to account. All of a sudden we have a new character enter the scene. As they were stoned, uh, it says, uh, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. New character enters the scene. And Saul played his part. What was Saul's part? In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. So everybody is doing, really, what they're supposed to do, what the gospel drives them to do. It either drives them to submission or it drives them to greater hardness of heart. Each of them are doing that very thing. Saul enters the picture and he, there he is witnessing all of this and he is approving of the stoning that's taking place. And what is it that Stephen does here in the final moments of his life? Verse 59 and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
which of course is a euphemism for the fact that he died. So he said with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So when you think about the future gospel effects, this is what we know, is that God actually answers his prayer, at least for one guy, in his final breath of being stoned to death because of the gospel that he introduced, and he's enduring the effects of those that are stoning him that heard that gospel introduced, you've got this guy named Saul, this young man named Saul, who is both witnessing and is assenting to all of this happening and would have heard because he's right there and because Stephen is saying it with a loud voice, he would have heard the very words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Can you imagine then when this same man is later called to be the apostle of the same gospel to the Gentiles, how he would look back on this same incident, that he was there, that he served a purpose. He helped to take care of the cloaks of those that could wind up and stone Stephen and kill him and would have been able to recall Stephen's own voice, cry out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so we see that God, even when the gospel comes forward, and even when there are all of these differing effects when the gospel is introduced, we can be reminded of that heavenly vision because we don't have to worry about the effects, even if the effects were to cost you your life. God is using that for his purpose to expand his kingdom the way that he sees fit. We don't know how it all works, but we can absolutely trust that he's working it out. So it certainly begs the question for you. When you hear this same gospel message that he has presented, the one that is contained within scripture, when you are told that you are not good enough, that there are no number of good works that are going to save you, does that, is that an offense to you? What do you think when you hear that? That you are not a good enough person to make it into heaven. When you are told, hey, you are a sinner, that you must have Jesus Christ to serve as your righteousness, completely separate from you, apart from you, if you are able to, if there's any chance that you're going to get into heaven. When you think about that, what is your response? Maybe you don't want to rush me, I hope you don't, and stop your ears and shout me down and drag me outside and start throwing rocks at me. But when you hear that, do you think, yeah, no, that's not me. I'm not that bad. I, I don't think so. That is the path of the hard-hearted. Or do you hear that and you say, yes, you're talking about me. I am a sinner. I must submit. I cannot possibly make up for the sins against a holy and a perfect God. And Christian, I want to ask you again and to remind you, whatever it is that you're going through, are you captivated with God's glory and with Jesus? Are you able to see what's happening in your life 
through the lens of Scripture, knowing that what he's doing, what you're going through, is a perfect part of his perfect plan of what he is carrying out. And you have no reason to complain about God about in, as it regards the situation that you're in. doesn't mean that it's easy or that it's good or that you have to like it, but are you able to be captivated with the glory of God? Are you able to sense his assurance? When the world rages, when the people around us, you know, in a sense, are sawn through the heart, when they're gritting their teeth at us because we're Christians, are you able to say to yourself, be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side? Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. That's what this, could it be thornier than what Stephen experienced? Could it, have, could it possibly have a more joyful end? than what Stephen experienced? And I think the answer is no to both of those questions. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have shown us that your gospel message is not just a theological proposition. It's not just one option among many. It is truth. It is hard-hitting truth. It's truth that hardens or truth that softens. And we pray, Lord, that the truth of your scripture would do its work, that you, Holy Spirit, would soften hearts, that you would change hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, that you would drop the scales from eyes just as you're going to do from Saul when he becomes Paul, Lord, on that road to Damascus. Lord, please intervene. Help us, regardless of our circumstances, to be able to look and to be captivated by you and by your glory to receive your assurance and to know that you are at work and that you are working out your good and perfect will even through our difficulties. In the name of Jesus, amen.